Um, Every day since March 1st, once February 29th was added into the year, um, it makes this year the exact same as the year we started the church as far as like a day of the week perspective, which means this. I know exactly what I was doing on June 5th. June 5th was the first ever Sunday morning worship experience that we ever tried. Not that we ever had, but that we ever tried. Five families began meeting in my house in January of 2011, doing Bible studies, praying, asking that God would help us to be able to start a church that would touch this community and change families in this community and lives in this community. And we met through January, February, March, April, May. In May, we did kind of a first Sunday night of May, did some worship just to see if we had like anyone in our congregation that could play an instrument and, you know, run PowerPoint while we did it. And it worked okay. So on June 5th, we tried our very first ever Sunday morning um, experience. We'd never done anything on a Sunday morning before. And we only, it was the only Sunday that we had church that month. And I remember we had 98 people total between like adults and children. Um, and I think we counted the secretary that worked at the place, Harris Park Community Center. We were like, she's alive and she can probably hear. So count her too. So we had 98 like total souls that were alive in the, in the building. We may have counted um, a fetus in the womb of one of our people, but, but right around a hundred people. Um, and we thought, man, this is, this is going to work. I remember we had no equipment. Um, I think we either rented or borrowed sound equipment. Jen, you may have brought equipment that day and just ran at your own stuff. I remember I had a friend who was a pastor at Westside Family Church um, over in Lenexa. His name was Scott Courtney. I went over to Scott, um, and I said, Scott, like, we need some pipe and drape so we can set up some kids' areas. We'll, we'll, will you let us borrow some? They, they just gave us some pipe and drape that we could use. John, I think that was the very first Sunday you ever walked in the building. I mean, like my memories, of, I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was so awesome. And at that Sunday morning service, we got up and did what we did at today's welcome, and we've done it nearly 250 times since. We've never met as a church on a Sunday morning without sharing our mission statement. So we can remember why we are gathered together, not just have a church service, but to literally see lives changed. Our mission statement as a church is we exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. And labeling the first and the third parts of that mission statement are pretty easy. Most people who live their lives far from God will kind of say, yeah, I'm not really into the religious thing, the spiritual thing, the Christian thing, the God thing. And people who are making a difference in the world are kind of pretty easy to see. You can look at people making a difference and say, man, the world is a better place because of them and what they're doing. But let me ask you a question this morning. What is a passionate Christian? Like, that's a little harder to define. What does a passionate Christian look like? That's the answer that I want to try to pursue a little bit this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. If you haven't already, reach in your bulletin, take out your sermon notes so that you can follow along because we're trying to figure out the answer to the question today and all this summer, what is a passionate Christian look like? If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles that you can use. They've got Bibles you can have. If you don't have a Bible to use today or you don't even know where one is at your house, just wave at the ushers when they come down. Keep a Bible, put your name in it, um, and take it home and start reading it. We'd love for you to have it so you can understand God's Word. But what does a passionate Christian look like? Uh, You know, there's probably a lot of answers to that question. But I can say with certainty this. Passionate Christians live their lives according to at least three things. They won't do less than these three things. So if you say, am I a passionate Christian? I don't know. Do you do these things? Do you live your life according to the great commandment, the great commission, and the great compassion? The great commandment, Matthew 22, we're going to study it in just a minute, says to love God with all your heart. Would you say you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
The Great Commission says you live your life to help other people understand who Jesus is. And every day as you go out into the world, you go with the thought of helping people understand who Jesus is. Would you say that you live your life according to the Great Commission? And the Great Compassion says that you are aware of and active in meeting the needs of hurting people. So just from the lips of Jesus, we would say a passionate Christian is certainly no less than the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, and the Great Compassion. But that's pretty high level spiritually. We've said all this year... 2016, we're calling the year of deep and wide at Journey Church International. We as a congregation want to grow deeper in our faith than we have ever been before. And as a church, we want to have wider influence and impact than we've ever had before, which is why I'm so excited in just a few months to move into our building. I've had people tell me they've been inviting people to our church for the last five years that have said, when you open your building, I'll finally come. So people who have been invited for five years are finally going to feel the impact of our church just because we move into a building that's a church and not a school. But we've been trying to press deep, and we're going to do that today. Great commandment, great commission, great compassion. That's a good place to start. But I want to go deeper with you into the great commandment today. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus had just answered a question about the resurrection, about eternal life about what heaven would be like and how to get to heaven. And those are great questions and conversations to have. But Jesus rarely talked about eternity without talking about having a relationship with God and without talking about how our hearts love and engage God. And he did that in Matthew chapter 22. In verses 34 through 40, here's the lesson we learn about what's most important in life. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Those were two different schools of religion in the day when Jesus was alive and teaching. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law... And the prophets hang on these two commandments. If you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, I want you to underline or circle those words, law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets is the bulk of the Old Testament. Jesus was saying, a a teacher came to him and he said, I have a question for you. Out of all the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, if you could just pick one or two things that were the most important things in the Hebrew Bible, Genesis to Malachi... What would be most important? And Jesus says, man, you need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you need to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, as a matter of fact, all the law and the prophet, the bulk of the Old Testament hangs on this. Did you know the 39 books of the Old Testament were divided into four parts from a scholarly view? The law was Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets were Isaiah through Malachi, 17 books near the end of our Old Testament. There was the history section, which was Joshua through Esther, which basically just taught Jewish history to Jewish kids. Um, And then there were the poetry and wisdom section, the book of Job through the Song of Psalms, or maybe you've heard it called the Song of Solomon. Those were the 39 books. But if you really wanted to know God's commands, God's direction, God's purposes... God's preferences for your life, you would look in the law and the prophets because that's where God said, do this to live close to me. And Jesus said that if you love God and love your neighbor, basically everything can fit into one of those two drawers of your spirituality. And the foundation of the law that is found in the law and the prophets was the Ten Commandments. 
So Jesus said, if you want to summarize the Old Testament, if you want to summarize the Ten Commandments, if you really want to know what's most important in life, it's going to boil down to two things, how you love God and how you love people. He said, everything hangs on these two. If you can picture loving God and loving your neighbor as two hangers in your closet, Jesus basically said, everything you learn in Scripture could hang on one of those hangers. Or maybe you could picture it as a flow chart. Love God and love people. Jesus basically said everything in the Bible, every command in the Bible fits under one of those two charts. Love God. All these things will help you love God. Loving your neighbor. All these things will help you love your neighbor. Basically, everything, if you have two drawers in your spiritual life, you can fit all the commands of Scripture in them. How you love God well, how you love people well. And when we look at the Ten Commandments hanging on these two, we see that the Ten Commandments teach us. They don't just command us, but they teach us how to love God, and they teach us how to love our neighbors. The Ten Commandments really are two sections of commandments. You have four commandments that teach us how to love God and how to honor God. And then there are six commandments that teach us how to love our neighbor or how to love people or how to lead our family. And for the next six weeks, starting today and going six more weeks, we're going to study the Ten Commandments. We're in a series that we're calling The Ten, God's Commands with Jesus' Insights, because Jesus taught on the Ten Commandments often, and he gave insights into the Ten Commandments about what they truly meant for humanity and for us in his teaching. So we're going to look at the Ten Commandments maybe in a different light than you've ever looked at them before. And if you have your Bibles today, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20 or dial it up on your phone or however you follow along, maybe your tablet, and and stick. If you have strings in your Bible, stick them right there in Exodus 20 because every Sunday we're going to be in Exodus 20 from now through the end of July. And we're going to begin today by asking this question, are the Ten Commandments for me? Right, I mean, this is a 4,000-year-old set of laws, set of commands, set of guidelines. They were given by God to a nation that we don't live in. They were given to God by, to a group of ethnic people that you might not be a part of unless you have some Jewish blood into your DNA. Are the Ten Commandments for us? Are they just good guidelines to learn or are they commands for us to follow? We're going to try to answer those questions. And before you walk out of here today, you are going to know whether the Ten Commandments are for you. And if they are, you're going to have a lot of good learning this summer. Here's what Exodus chapter 20 says. It is the first home in Scripture. Ten Commandments are found several places. But they were given first in Exodus chapter 20. And here's what it says. And God spoke all these words. Exodus 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, and I want to stop right there. Because when you begin to study the Ten Commandments, you notice something immediately. Before God gave a single command, he gave a brief history lesson, and he introduced himself as who he was, what he had done, and why he was able to give these commands. So before we look at the commands, it's it's important for us to look at God and what our perspective of God is. Because the commands don't matter if the condition of your heart isn't right. As I really began to study the Ten Commandments for the past, I sent out an email this week, three years ago God led my heart to do a series on the Ten Commandments. It has never really fit into the sermon schedule of our calendar, but this year it finally did. I've been so excited and I've been studying the Ten Commandments. 
And as I studied the Ten Commandments, I learned a lot about the kind of the prequel to the Ten Commandments, that the commands don't matter if the condition of your heart isn't right. God introduces himself and says, here's the way you need to see the Ten Commandments if they're going to be important for you. The first condition of your heart is you need to see yourself as someone who's been freed from spiritual slavery. Do you see yourself that way? God said, I've got some things for you to hear, but I need you to see me as the person who rescued you from slavery. Because how you see me is going to make a difference in how you follow me, and how you perceive me is going to make a difference in how you will observe my authority in your life. Do you believe that without Jesus, your life was headed or is headed towards a dead end spiritually? Was your life without Jesus filled with a feeling that there was always something missing? Even on your best day, you knew there was something always missing? When was the last time that you were reminded that you were a dirty, rotten person apart from Jesus and what he's done in your life? Or have you ever thought that about yourself? We have a candidate running for president right now who calls himself a Christian and has said on record that he has never asked God for forgiveness for anything in his life ever. Can you be a Christian without feeling like you need to be forgiven and rescued from who you are and what you've done? For me, this question is very, very easy because it was a couple weeks ago. At the end of the service, I'm going to talk to you about a new instrument that we have to minister to our people well. We've we've got a new app that is incredible that's going to allow you to connect to our church like never before. I'm going to tell you about the end of service because if I told you about it now, you would all play with it the whole time instead of listening to this message. So at the end of the service, I'll tell you how you can go get that. But about two or three weeks ago, um, our team gave it to me to give to our staff, to our elders, and just to a few people outside so that they could test it so we could have a few test drives. So I sent it to all my family, and I said, hey, check out our new app. Here's how you get it. Scroll through it, and just let me know what you think about it. And the day I sent it, my little sister posted it on her Facebook account. And she said, hey, you all need to go follow my brother's church and his app. And if you don't go to church anywhere, you need to listen to his sermons every weekend. And I saw her put that up, and immediately people from my past, my school teachers and people I went to high school with, immediately began to make comments about the app, about our church, about messages they had listened to. And I wasn't filled with pride. I was filled with shame. Like I looked at the names of teachers and people who were posting, and and I was just deeply ashamed of who I was from 14 to 18 years old. Because I thought, they're listening to me say to live ways that I, didn't, that I didn't live. They're listening to me preach the Bible in a manner that I didn't live my life. And I thought, my, the whole world is going to think I'm a hypocrite because who I am now is not who I was then. And I was just ashamed. I just felt like a dirty, rotten person apart from the grace of Jesus. And what I realized is I'm not at 38 who I was at 18, and I'm grateful for that. But I think at 58, I'm going to look back and think at th- look at 38 and say, man, at 38, you were nowhere near where you needed to be because really getting to know Jesus is something that happens over a lifetime filled with experiences that draw your heart into him. One of my favorite pastors is Rick Warren, and I went to his church many years ago, and he said this quote in his message. I wrote it down. You may not be who you want to be, but as long as you're not who you used to be, you're headed in the right direction. Like, that's me. At 38, I'm not who I want to be, but I'm certainly not who I was at 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. And when I think, when I think about people from that season of my life looking and listening to me now, I'm deeply ashamed at what they're hearing because who they are listening to is not who they watched live his life. 
And I pray they give me the benefit of the doubt. But I don't know if they would. I, so I, sent, I felt a deep sense of, of shame. And I felt a deep sense of rescue. That God had rescued me from myself. You know, David, who killed Goliath, who became the great king of Israel, had to be the most well thought of and talked about person of his generation. Samuel had anointed him as king of Israel. He had then killed Goliath. I mean, everyone thought well of David. Listen, but David. Everyone thought David was the most spiritual person in Israel, except for David. Everyone thought David had this unbelievable heart spiritually except for David because David wrote in Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on all of mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, and all have turned away, all have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. I think David listened to people talk about him spiritually and he felt shame because he knew who he was and he knew the desires that he had. And he knew that if he didn't stay close to God, his life could get off the rails quickly. And David said, man, people look at me and they see spiritual things, but I look in myself and I see someone who's desperate to be rescued spiritually. You see, those who believe they've been rescued always find it easier to follow. So Jesus says, love God, love your neighbor. All the commands of God can be added to this. And you go back to the commands of God and you see before God giving commands, he gives an introduction of himself as one who has rescued people from slavery. If you have your Bibles open, turn over to Exodus chapter 1 and let me talk to you about that slavery for just a minute because maybe you were like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1 instead of Exodus chapter 20. Or maybe you're existing somewhere between Exodus 1 and Exodus 20 and you're still trying to figure out If maybe you're a Christian who's never had to ask God for forgiveness for anything. Or if maybe you're a Christian and you've added Jesus to your very good life, but you don't see yourself as desperate spiritually, maybe you never have. In Exodus chapter 1, we meet not the nation of Israel, but the family of Israel. And here's what it said. These are the names of the sons of Israel. He was a man, not a nation, who went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Those are his sons. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, with brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now stop right there. Between verses 14 and 15 in your Bible, just write 400 years. Because that's how long passes. Between Exodus 1.14 and Exodus 1.15, 400 years pass. And we're introduced halfway through Exodus chapter 1 to a nation of people that had been slaves for 400 years. Now, how long is 400 400 years? I want you to think about this. The United States of America will turn 230, um, 240 years old this summer. Just think about that for a minute. 
from the signing of our Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, to this July 4, 2016, be 240 years. I want you to go another 160 years into the future. That's how long these people had been slaves. There wasn't an Israelite alive up to five or six generations who knew anything but slavery. They had never been to church. They had never gone to the temple. They did not have a Bible. They didn't have a written word, not one word of God. There were no priests. There were no sacrifices. There were no feast days. There were no commands. There was nothing but slavery every day. The Egyptians were their gods. The Egyptians were their masters. And then all of that changed in a matter of months. In a period of 90 to 120 days, everything changed. And the Israelite slaves in this three to four month period had witnessed their God perform ten plagues against Egypt to free them and then seven miraculous signs to protect them and sustain them, much like we just read about the seven miraculous signs of Jesus in the book of John. God parted the Red Sea. He led by a pillar of fire at night. He led by a pillar of cloud during the day. He provided water in the desert when they were dying of thirst. He provided bread in the desert when they were dying of hunger. He then gave them quail when they just wanted something different than bread. And he actually gave them a victory in war without a standing army, any training, or any weapons. They won a battle against the Amalekites because Moses, the man of God, was able to stand with assistance from Aaron and Hur with his hands up praying for the people of God. Seven radically miraculous signs. And about seven weeks after their miraculous rescue from Egypt, the former slaves arrived at Mount Sinai to meet God. And as slaves, God could have told them anything. But they got to Mount Sinai and God didn't force them to follow him. But after all that, after everything they'd seen and experienced, God said, if you want to follow me, here's how. You see, the first condition of our heart in really accepting any command that God ever gives us is we have to feel like God has rescued us and He is worthy of our worship and our obedience. But the second condition is this. We have to accept the invitation to follow. I think this maybe was the most drastic part of the learning experience of the Ten Commandments for me as I began to study this. The Ten Commandments were not forced upon a people that didn't want to follow God. I want you to hear that. The Ten Commandments were not forced upon a people that didn't want to follow God. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan for a generation, and God never told Abraham to tell the people of Canaan to live their lives according to the Ten Commandments. Joseph was a high-ranking ruler in the Egyptian government, and God never told Joseph to tell the Egyptians to live their lives according to the Ten Commandments. No nation on planet earth that didn't know God or want to follow God had been given the Ten Commandments. But instead, the Ten Commandments were given as guidance to those who desired to be close to God, to those who had been invited to follow God. They had agreed to follow God, and then God said, here is how you do it. So they were really guidelines as much as they were commandments of how you become a very special person, how you have a relationship with God. And I think sometimes we get this backwards. I don't know if you're aware, but in the last 20, 25 years, there's been a movement within the culture of America to remove the symbol of the Ten Commandments from courthouses, from town halls, from city hall, from town squares. And there's been a big uproar about that. I mean, I, I've, I've been a part of services where we talk about stuff like that. 
And I've engaged in a lot of conversations with Christians who say, you know, I can't believe they're, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe they're taking the Ten Commandments out of the State House. I can't believe they're going to remove the monument of the Ten Commandments and put it in storage. And I always say to people who say that, well, what are the Ten Commandments? And you know, most Christians don't even know the Ten Commandments. I mean, they want them hanging in the courthouses and they want to make sure that everyone in America lives by them. They want to make sure the Ten Commandments are forced upon a culture that maybe doesn't desire to be close to God, but as Christians who love the Ten Commandments, I tell them, what, what are the commandments? And most of I, you know, I don't, I don't know them all. I love, love God. You know, Jesus said, if we just memorize two, it's like, no, 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 no. That, that's not going to work, that argument. What are the Ten Commandments? So I've got a summer challenge for you if you're a Christian who has accepted the invitation to follow God. I want to challenge you and your family this summer to memorize the Ten Commandments together as a family. Danielle and I did this a few summers ago with our kids, and it was awesome. Just to memorize the Ten Commandments and talk about them at meals and when we were together. I want to challenge you this summer to be at church or to listen to every message the next six weeks on the Ten Commandments. If they're important enough to you to think they should be hanging everywhere, hang them in your heart and listen to them and understand what they mean. And then I want to challenge you to post the Ten Commandments in your home for the summer. If they're that important to you that you've ever been upset that they've been removed from anywhere, post them in your home. Or don't. It's your decision. And it was actually the Israelites' decision 4,000 years ago. And I didn't really recognize that until I began to study this. If you have your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 19. One more thing I want to show you before next week we begin to dig into the actual commandments themselves. Ten plagues, seven miracles. The people arrive after seven weeks of freedom, finally at Mount Sinai. And here's what we hear on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You saw how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if, circle the word if. This is a a conditional request. This is a conditional invitation. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Before there was a single commandment given, there was a relationship offered. God said, here is how I would like to interact with you. Here is, here is who I would like to be to you. And if you want to, to be with me like this, I can tell you how to do that. And the people said, yes, we do. Tell us how to do that. Before the people of Israel were, were ever given a commandment, they were invited to become, number one, God's treasured possession. God says, the whole earth is mine, but you, I want to invite you into a special relationship with me. He said, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. The priest was a mediator between God and people. God said, I want to make you the people 
that stand between me and the world and, and you will be the people that helps the world understand who I am, how I work, how I love. The world will look at you as, as someone who has a relationship with me and they will learn about me. You will be a kingdom of priests and you'll be a holy nation. The word holy means set apart for a special purpose. God said you'll be special. Your land will be special. You know, it's interesting that 4,000 years ago, God said, you, the land of Israel, will be a holy nation. And if you go to any of the 104, 105 nations listed on the registry of the United Nations, and you say, where is the holy land? In every nation and in every tongue, they will tell you the holy land is. That's Israel. It's what God promised 4,000 years ago, and it holds true today. Before they were ever given a commandment, They were invited into relationship. And only then did God give them the commandments. And the people of Israel accepted the invitation. And by accepting the invitation, they positioned themselves to fulfill the promises of God's commands. To know who He was and to be able to love Him fully with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't know how before he gave them the commands. And to learn how to love people the way that God loved people, the final six commandments that would hang on that part of the Ten Commandments. But do you know that a better process has led us to this exact same position today? Do you know that seven weeks before the Israelites were given the Ten Commandments, the word that came down from heaven, that the Israelites for the first time celebrated Passover, the Lamb of God? Do you know that what kicked off this event was a lamb, a physical lamb being slaughtered to save the Israelites from a physical death? And then after seven weeks of life and miracles and seeing who God was, that the word of God would come down and it would speak to them on two tablets, the first thing God had ever written in the history of planet earth. His word would be given to the people, an exhaustive list of commands to try to obey perfectly. If you were at the the mountain that day, I think we would say, okay, God, I'm in, I want to do this. And then we would find ourselves like the Israelites failing over and over and over again. But do you know that Jesus was the more perfect picture of what we are studying here today? You see, in Exodus, the Passover lamb was slaughtered so that the people might be spared physical death. But in Matthew, John introduced Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know that Jesus was crucified on the eve of Passover? Not a physical lamb slaughtered to represent physical salvation, but a perfect spiritual person slaughtered on the cross to to represent spiritual salvation for the people. Do you know how many weeks after the resurrection of Jesus that God moved again from heaven to earth? It was seven on the day of Pentecost. Do you know Passover represented forever the Lamb of God that would be slaughtered to save the people and Pentecost represented forever when God fell from heaven in the form of the Ten Commandments to teach the people how to follow Him. Jesus didn't come as an exhaustive list of commandments, but He came as an example of what somebody would look like who lived their life close to God, near to God, following God. And do you know as the New Testament In the Old Testament, typifies Jesus in every way, but you know as the New Testament lays out who Jesus is and how to follow Jesus, and as the people are invited to follow Jesus, do you know what the Bible says about people who would become followers of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? Listen to what Peter says about people who connect with Jesus and follow Him, and tell me if it rings a bell. Peter says, you as Christians are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, as a Christian, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament says we have been rescued to become a chosen people. A people chosen by God to know Him and be close to Him and follow Him. The Bible says as a Christian, if you've accepted the invitation to have a relationship with God through Jesus, you have become a royal priesthood, which means you now are the identity of what it looks like. If people want to know who God is, they can look at your life because you are a mediator between God and the rest of the people in the world. The Bible says if you've accepted the invitation to become a Christian, you are part of a holy nation set apart for a specific purpose to serve God, to love people the way that God would have you serve Him and love Him. And do you know if you're a Christian, the Bible says you're God's special possession. Do any of those things ring a bell? You see, as we get ready to study the Ten Commandments, we find ourselves again today at the base of Mount Sinai with an invitation to have a special relationship with God. God said, before you have to follow one of my commands, enter into relationship with me. If you want to do that, I'll show you how to love me and love people the way I would want you to. If you don't want to, then these commands aren't for you. But I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of Christians who want to press the commands of God onto a world who doesn't love God. And as Christians, we don't even know them ourselves. Friends, that's what the Bible calls hypocrisy. That's where Jesus says, take take the plank out of your own eye before you see the speck in someone else's eyes. Why do you want the commandments in the courtyard when they're not in your heart? Why do you want them hanging in the courtroom when you don't even know them in your head? These commandments are for a people who accept a relationship with God and they lean into it and God said, here's how you follow me. So are the commandments for me? Are they for you? If you've accepted the invitation to have a relationship with God through Jesus, yes, they are for you. And they will not put your life in a box that is a prison. They will free your life to love God the way he wants to be loved and to love your neighbor the way your neighbor wants to be loved. You say, well, how do I become? How do I become a chosen person? How do I become a royal priesthood? How do I become a holy nation? How do I become God's special possession? answer is this. You learn and obey the commands of your God. You learn and you obey the commands of your God. And the result of this, according to 1 Peter 2, is that our lives then declare who Jesus is so others see his light in us, which would be the next part of our mission statement. You see, we exist to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. And you are somewhere in that today. Maybe you're far from God and you didn't know that God wants a relationship with you and you can have it. You didn't know you were special to God. You didn't know that God could choose anyone in the world, but he wants to choose you, sir. He wants to choose you, ma'am. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. You may have walked in today far from God, but God wants you to know today he's near to you. Maybe you're trying to move into the process of becoming a passionate Christian and getting better in your faith walk. But I promise you this, if we will lean into the commands of God and who... Jesus says he is, through his insights into the Ten Commandments, will begin to make a difference in the world. So I certainly want to do that. How do I make a difference in the world spiritually? Number one, you accept Jesus' invitation to become his special people. God loves you. 
He sees you, and not because of your perfection, but just because of your humanity, because He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. You are special to God if you will accept His invitation. Secondly, you then learn and obey the commands of God, not so we can press them upon others, but so that we can press them into ourselves and just through our lives show them to others. And by doing that three, we let His life, His light shine through our life. So how are you doing spiritually today? When we talk about the, the Ten Commandments, have you accepted an invitation to follow Jesus? If you, if you have, these commands are for you. If you haven't, but you've always desired to be close to God, to be a spiritual person, to feel close to God, you can do that this morning by accepting the invitation to be one of God's special people. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that now before we close. So would you just bow your heads and with every head bowed and every 